Oh, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. It's my joy to help lead us through the book of James as we're wrapping it up this week and next week. But before we begin that, if you are uh, new to us today or you've been new recently, we would encourage you there on the back cover is a QR code, just like you're doing at just about every restaurant nowadays. You want to take your phone out and scan that. Uh, that, that'll take you to a place where if you would like to get together, grab a cup of coffee or give us some information you can keep in the loop, um, you can have an opportunity to do that. We don't give your information away to any third parties or anything like that at all. There's also in the back cover there, those of you who are here, if you would like to be part of the volunteer corps, it does take a tremendous army every Sunday morning to put everything together. And we're very grateful. If you'd like to be occasionally part of that army, you can scan that other QR code and there are uh, ways to sign up and you can figure out exactly what you would like to sign up um, for the rest of you, we're working our way, again, like I said, through James, and today on page 10 and 11 in your bulletin is today's passage. The ESV translation is on page 10, and then on page 11 is the special Sycamore version that we have for kids that help us understand, and we'll be referring to both of those throughout of the service today. So as we begin, I kind of want to take your mind to a very famous character in our culture who kind of just is the epitome of a cultural moment for us a couple years ago. Some of you will know exactly who this is. Please don't stand up and start belting it out. Those of you who are fans, but I want to reintroduce you to Elsa, as I've used her before. So Elsa captured just the way our culture thinks and feels, right? This song wasn't just catchy. It like resonated deep in people's hearts, right? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And she goes on to say, here I stand and here I'll stay. Let the storm rage on. So she's claiming her own independence from everything and she's claiming her autonomy from everybody else. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. Here I stand. I'm good. Let it all go crazy. I am in charge of my life. That is the very fundamentalist almost all of a sudden. That is what the Bible calls the sin of pride. This is not, as a parent, I'm so proud of my children doing something. That's a different kind of pride. This is a pride that says these words to the universe, to God. I am in charge. I get to decide my destiny. And this song resonated profoundly with many in our time. And it's going to resonate with this passage today in the book of James. So where have we been in the book of James? James tells us that warfare in the church shows that we lack humility and that we have too much pride. That was last week. Here, this week, he's going to look at pride expressed in our daily life and pride expressed in our money. The call last week of James was to be all in with Jesus. It's a total life project. It's a total lifestyle, what our culture calls an identity. God promises, we see, that if we root our identity in who Jesus says we are, if we root our identity in Him, He exalts us while making us humble. He becomes our identity, as opposed to the prideful identities we tend to default into. So with that introduction, would you please stand, as is our tradition, for the reading of God's Word on page 10, James 4, 13 through 5, 6. This is God's Word. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And this is God's Word. Let's pray together. Your gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before a passage like this today that has a lot of do this, don't do that. A lot of poignant, difficult things. And Lord, we pray right now that you would make your word living and active, that it would do its surgery on our hearts, that we would see our evil, that we would see our sin. But Lord, we pray that just as brightly we would see your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that instead of hearing words of do better, try harder, get your act together, we would hear, come and rest. And that we would take the easy yoke of Jesus upon us. Lord, we pray that you would show us our sin and then your grace to cover our sin. Even this day, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So one of the big themes of James has been, we'll call it authentic Christianity. It's a wedding of belief and action, of faith plus works. And we struggle to live that way in the church often. We have to remember that James is addressing Christians. He's not out there castigating those who don't know Jesus and don't have the resources. He's talking to those in the church already, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ and publicly proclaimed be part of his community. And so to this community in chapter 2, James told us that splitting faith and works apart is just as monstrous, just as scary, just as weird as splitting apart a body and a soul. And so, to help us understand that, we've been using the metaphor of ghosts and zombies. So, all faith, no works. That's all beliefs. It's all ethereal. It's all spirit, no body, which is what? A ghost. The other side is all works, but no faith. And so, that's all body, and it's no spirit, and that's zombies. So, with that metaphor, we're seeing how we can have zombies and ghosts, these monsters in the church, wreaking havoc. But instead, what does James do? James, in chapter 2, also challenged us, instead of being those monsters, James challenged, if you remember, to be poets. Poets of Jesus. Poets of the Logos, or commonly translated doers of the Word. And what it means to be a poet is this person who's a connection between the world that's coming and the world that is. That instead of separating faith and works, we put them together and demonstrate this beautiful new humanity that God is bringing about in the gospel. That gets us to our theme for today, which is this. We live like prideful monsters until Jesus helps us live in beauty. See, until the gospel heals us, we live our life like zombies or we wallow in ghost money. So we'll start out here by looking at this together. So I want to start out talking about the zombie life, living as if God doesn't matter 
to our daily life. And what James does is he jumps right into the world of commerce. Now, first things first, sorry, social justice warriors. God is not anti-commerce. You're going to have to cut and paste a verse out of context from somewhere else. This one won't do it, okay? James is talking about the presumption of certain Christians. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls. Let's all look together at their verse 13 to understand. Here's what James is saying. He says, look, don't be so fast to think you can live and make lots of plans without ever thinking about God. See, James is pointing to this foible in the church where people are assuming God's non-involvement in real life. It's, it's a dualistic view where we separate the spiritual from the real. We separate the practical from, the actual, from, from church stuff. Theologians call this practical atheism. It's living and working as if God doesn't exist all while saying He does. So you have this belief you confess but it never gets a body to it. It's never, it's never put into the world. It's all these actions, but your beliefs never shine through. It's a zombie life. Here, here's, here's how it helps, I, I understand, it helps me. It's treating God like 911. Here's what I mean. How many of you want the government, the authorities, to routinely call you? Let's say every three days they call you and say, Are you safe? Are you taking your vitamins? Have you gotten rid of all the tripping hazards in your home? Are all your outlet covers in? How many of you love to have the government interfering in your life like that, right? Yeah, especially a church of this ilk, right? <laughs> no. Right? When, but when we have those things, right? When we do trip, when we do eat something we shouldn't, when we do stick our finger in the light socket, you know, children, don't do that. We want to call 911 and then respond right there, right? And that's how the practical atheist treats God. Stay out of my life until I need you, right? And then things start falling apart. Oh, our Father who art in heaven, please fix this. Anyway, we, we do that, don't we? That's what James is talking about here. That's a pride that says, I can fulfill myself. I believe in you, God, but I don't need you. I've got Monday through Saturday handled. You can have Sunday. Well, the morning. Well, an hour. See, and, and James comes along in verse 14 and says, that won't work. You can't rest your life in that because there's nothing substantial there. Instead of the bedrock foundation of the Creator Himself, instead of rooting your life in that, you're rooting your life in yourself, and you have as much substance as that morning mist that just evaporates by seven. So what's the alternative? Well, he tells us in verse 15, here's the alternative. Instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Okay, so first of all, James is not calling here for some mantra that we kind of mindlessly repeat. I had a friend in college that I was getting to know him, and, and he was a, a committed Christian from a different tradition. And I remember our, our very first time we met, had a great interaction. He said, hey, you know, we should grab coffee together sometime. You want to you grab coffee, like maybe like Tuesday morning between, between classes? And he's like, if the Lord wills. And I is that a yes or a no? And he's like, if the Lord wills. And I was like, um, well, I'm going to take that as a no. So, because I, you know, I need to know if I'm going to go somewhere. That's not what James is talking about doing here. Okay. He's not saying just repeat this over and over again. Here's what James is doing. Here's how I put it for the, for the kids so they could catch this. Here's their verse 15. James is saying, look, you should live every day remembering that God is in charge of your life. See, confessing that we need God's help to do life. Boys and girls, do you sometimes need help to do things? Do you sometimes need mom and dad's help to do things? Well, what James is reminding parents and other adults is that, you know what? You sometimes, oftentimes, need God's help to do things too. 
kind of silly, isn't it, boys and girls, that mom and dad have to be reminded like that. But James does it anyway. Now, earlier in James, he told us last chapter, I believe, that we're supposed to submit and draw near. Remember that? Those are, we love those words. Yes, yeah, submit. We love that. Uh-huh. And then draw near. And we said, actually, literally, it's a picture of actually crawling up into God's lap and getting embraced by him, him helping you. The opposite of that, the opposite of that authentic, real Christianity that embraces God as Father is living a zombie life, a practical atheism, acting as if God has very little to do with our lives. See, what's happening here is these Christians he's writing to, they check their spirituality at the church door as they leave. They spend their week walking around as a dead zombie. And James tells us in verse 16 that such a life is actually really arrogance. It's boastful. It's a prideful Elsa attitude, and it's evil, he says. Now, the emotional context, if you'll allow me to invent that phrase, the emotional context of this passage kind of tells us why is it evil. Because when we ignore God during the week, our lives demonstrate we really don't love Him as Father, even though we proclaim we do. See, the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. It's a complete disregard. You have to actually be thinking about someone to hate them, whereas you don't even exist to me. That's apathy, and that's the opposite of love, and practical atheism is apathy towards God, ignoring Him. But James has a solution for this, for Christians caught up in this. Let's look together at verse 17. He says this, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Again, this is another one of those verses people love. They get their scissors and take it out of context and be like, right, my subjective tastes are sin, therefore they should be sin for you too. It's like, no, it's not what he's saying. It's not what James is saying. Keep it in context. What's he saying? He is saying this. If you agree with everything I just said, let's pretend he's writing to Presbyterians. If you just gave the pastor that good, mm, Presbyterian grunt, you know, yeah, and then you don't change your behavior, it's sin. You're agreeing, that is true, I don't care. That is sin. This is harsh, man. You can see why Martin Luther did not like the book of James. Where is the grace, right? See, but what, what is James doing here? James is wedding beliefs and actions. He's saying this is what real life looks like. He won't let us comfortably disconnect our Sunday self from our Monday through Saturday self. But it's not just a prohibition. He gives us a positive view here too. I love that in this verse here, in verse 17, it's not the usual word you would see throughout the New Testament for right as opposed to wrong. It's actually the word beautiful. Literally, he says, the beauty to make. So those who know the beauty to make but don't do it are sinning. Which sounds really weird, except again, in context, we've seen beauty a couple times already in James. Remember chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Christians, you were called to make beauty. No more zombies, no more ghosts. Instead, those monsters are recreated into a new, beautiful humanity that then takes God's beauty out to the world. See, we said then, and what James helps us see here, is that to be godly is to be beautiful. We don't think about it in those terms, do we? But Christians are a reflection of the beauty which God is bringing about in the world. 
And when we aren't reflecting God's beauty, James says we're sinning. See, it's the whole idea of us being poets. James is kind of summing everything up here. If you remember, what was a poet? James defined it. A poet is one who what? They take the world that is coming that one day, someday will be, that beautiful world that's coming, and they're the connections in a world that is not quite often beautiful. We're that connection of God's beauty here on earth. And here's where it gets hard. For those of us who fall into this kind of evil in the church, who fall into this kind of prideful, practical atheism, verse 17 reminds us that we don't do it out of ignorance. It's not that we didn't know. It's that we didn't want to. We did what we wanted to do more. We lived the zombie life by choice. We ignore God much of the time, James says, because we don't really rest in the gospel of grace. And so to help us really see that, he now turns to our finances, which we just love talking about in church, right? So we go from the zombie life to ghost money. The zombie life is what? Living as if God doesn't matter to what we do. Ghost money is living as if God doesn't care what we do. So one, we ignore him. The other one, we think he sees, he doesn't care. Especially in the world of economics. Now again, Social justice warriors in the room, and I know you're here, you're hiding, but I know you. Context matters, don't get too fired up here. James is talking to a pre-capitalist economy, a pre-capitalist society. There's a hereditary ruling class. There is very little, if any, upward mobility, unless you're like a glorious you know, military hero, which means that rich is not an adjective. It's a proper noun in this context. It's a title. It's a defined social class. To use a word from, that we haven't used very often, boys and girls, you may not know this word, I want to teach you a word, right? Here it is, it's called a plutocrat. We got that word, there we go, plutocrat. Okay, it has nothing to do with Mickey Mouse and his dog, okay? A plutocrat is a person whose power derives from their wealth. James is talking to this group of people in the church. So what does that mean? It means he's talking to Christians who have this pride about them from the power that comes with wealth. It's another kind of practical atheism. It's faith without works. And again, this is kind of hard to understand, so here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Maybe we can all understand together. Let's look at boys and girls verses 1 and 2. They're on page 11. It says this. You who think you run the world because you have money should be sad because God will send bad things to you. If your money makes you proud, then your money is rotten and worthless. Boys and girls, you know anybody at school? in your neighborhood who just thinks they're better than you. That's what James is talking about. There are people in the church who think they're better than other Christians because God has blessed them with money. That's what he's talking about. That pride comes out. And what James says is that kind of abuse of God's blessing is earthly wisdom. Their wealth may as well be rotten, moth-eaten, corroded. What James does here is James actually gives us a very familiar image for those of us who have New Testament ears to hear it. Okay, if you're new here today, you wouldn't call yourself versed in the New Testament, that's okay. Those of you who would, you should have, your ears should have picked up here, because remember, James is most likely, the scholars are split on this, but most likely James appears to be one of the earliest New Testament books, writing a mere decade, maybe 15 years after the crucifixion. 
and resurrection of Jesus. James was the brother of Jesus. James was there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he, is, he has heard his brother teach over and over and over again. You know, we have the gospel accounts, and we get to see Jesus do this one time, but Jesus gave these teachings all over the place routinely. And one of the things he loved to do is he loved to tell stories called parables. Parables are stories that Jesus makes up to make a point, to really get something across. It was a unique teaching method that he kind of invented. And what James is doing here, James is actually appealing to one of those parables. Now, let me pause real quick. If the, if the idea of a parable kind of intrigues you, let me do a little plug here. In October and November, we're going to be going through a series of some parables from the Gospel of Luke. So you want to come back and, and um, check those out. And I'll give you a secret here. Okay, shh, don't tell anybody. Most likely in the month of October, we're going to be meeting outside because we want to, not because we have to. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, you can clap for that. So, so anyway, James is telling is here probably one of the earliest written references to what's called the parable of the talents that Jesus told. In the parable of the talents, this really rich guy, he has to go on a really long trip. So he gets his top three servants, his, 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 his top three VPs, and he divides his fortune into, thir- in, into uh, three different parts, and he gives a chunk of his fortune to each of them and says, show me what you can do, and, I get, and I'll, I'll, I'll evaluate when I get back. Goes on his trip, comes back. The first two guys invested it wisely, made money, they get promotion. Third guy comes back, and he's like, well, I didn't lose any, because he buried it in the ground, didn't invest it, didn't do anything with it, and he goes, here you go, I didn't lose any of your money. And the master is like, you know, rolls up his newspaper, is like, bad VP, and fires him, and he also sends him to punishment. And the point of the story is this. Jesus says, look, God wants you to use your resources to make things beautiful. You're supposed to do something with the resources God has given you, and we've taken that over the course of Western history, and this is where we get our idea of a talent from, from the parable of the talents. If God has given you something musical ability, then God wants you to use that for the life of the church, like the worship team. Isn't that odd how that timing worked out that way? I promise you we didn't plan that out, but we to- Mike and I totally geeked out when these two things lined up, so it's great. See, what's happening here is these Christians to whom James is writing, they're not doing that. They're taking their time, their talent, their treasure, and they're saying, mine, I won't do those things for you. And James calls him out on it. Look at the second part of verse 3. He just point blank says, he says, You have laid up treasure in the last days. That phrase laid up there is actually the word for hoarded. Isn't that a great word, hoarded? Think about hoarding your wealth. Okay, those of you who are my age and under, maybe a little older, remember 10th grade English literature? Remember Silas Marner? Remember this at all? This means yes, this means no. Anybody remember reading Silas Marner? Okay, guy total abject poverty, but yet his crawl space was totally filled with money. And like there was a couple scenes in the book that are kind of icky. He like takes his money out. He like actually bathes in it. His hoarding heart just rejoices in his money. Does Silas Martyr not get it for you? Okay. I tried to assume your highbrow. Okay. Sorry. How about this then? How about Scrooge McDuck? Anybody remember this one? Scrooge McDuck? There we go. Yes, exactly. Scrooge McDuck swimming in his money bin, right? Silas Martyr. Oh, yeah, Scrooge McDuck, right? By the way, okay, when you put coins down like that, they act as a solid metal. You can't swim in them like that. Don't try it. Anyway, so but look at the joy on his face. Okay, he is getting so much joy and fulfillment. He has a hoarder's heart. 
That's the heart attitude James is getting at in this verse. You have laid up treasure. You've hoarded this in your heart. Having this pile of resources gives you peace and happiness and fulfillment. Christians, it ought not to be that way for us. See, their wealth reinforces their pride rather than humility at being used of God. See, when God blesses you, and then you use that to help others, it humbles you. And James says, you're missing that blessing. And don't miss it, he says, this is the last days. The New Testament uses that phrase over and over again, and it's, it means the church age. The New Testament is just pretty clear. The resurrection of Jesus starts the beginning of the last days. The clock is ticking. I know we all like to read newspapers and try to figure out when are the last days. You in them, according to the New Testament, okay? I'll, I'll solve it for you. There you go. So Jesus inaugurates the last days, and so generosity with our time, with our talent, and with our treasures is the norm for the days when Jesus is building his church. Why do you think he's given you time, talent, and treasures? So that you may help build his church. Hoarding is a contradiction of our very most basic beliefs, James says. In these last days, when the next phase of history is that coming world coming to this world, heaven coming down, in this phase, waiting for that, we're doers of the word, poets who are a connection to that world, showing the world that's coming through our time, through our talent, through our treasures. That's the making beauty of verse 17. Hoarding contradicts that beautiful truth. And now, many of you are thinking right now, I know, dude, I wish that knowing what to do with a pile of money was my problem, right? I know. But see, but it doesn't matter if you've got 400 in the bank or 400,000 in the bank. We can all be hoarders. In the name of thrift, of being responsible, you can check your savings account balance. And it may not be growing very much, but as long as it's not going down, you feel peace. You feel security. You feel okay. And you check that app an awful lot. That's hoarding. That's a financial idol. The hoarder goes to a pile of treasure for meaning and identity. Or maybe this, for we overstressed and overscheduled suburbanites who love our leisure, um, we can hoard our time. Rarely serving because we need our me time, right? That's just as much an issue of hoarding as is hoarding money. Because it's about the heart. See, the hoarder's heart asks this question. Can God really be trusted with my time? Can God really be trusted with my treasure? Can God really be trusted with my talent, or do I have to hold those and protect those? Because I need those. But it's not only about the individual. We can do this on a bigger community level. Social justice warriors, I poked fun at you, but here's where you actually have a point. Those of us who James says are a passing mist, especially in these last days, have identified with their wealth so much. Don't miss this. These Christians have purposefully withheld proper wages to gain a bigger hoard. That is unjust withholding. And it calls out, James says, in accusation. You can't get around it. I know many of us would like to. We can't get God hears and cares about that economic injustice in verse 4. 
And notice how James signals how serious it is. He says, this has gotten the attention of the Lord of hosts. That's the title God uses when he wants to intimidate you. Seriously, in context, find, look up, do a little Google, Google search and find that one. It's the equivalent of saying, I'm the chief, no, not CEO, is it? What, what's the military term I'm looking for here? I'm the commander-in-chief. That's, I'm the commander-in-chief of heaven's armies. I have the will and I got the resources. You want to know me and what army? This one to fix this. When God uses that term, he's trying to intimidate somebody. So James says that intimidating God who cares about justice sees that and he's going to fix it. See, selfish injustice is not hidden from the Lord who has the resources to find and fix and punish. And then the image of verse 5, in case we can kind of maybe weasel our hearts out of that one, the image of verse 5 makes it even harsher. Look what he says. He says, those of you who are doing this, you Christians who claim to be my daughters and sons, purposely hoarding things and underpaying or whatever application we can make, you actually, I've been letting you fatten yourself up like a rancher does with his cattle, preparing you for slaughter. Why does God care so much? I mean, this is like really bad imagery, right? People are probably you know, texting James's oversight committee right now going, uh, can you talk to him about these images, please? Because the hoarder hurts the community. That's why, James, that's why God cares. Because Jesus taught what? Riches are not to rot. Clothes should not be insect food. Gold and silver shouldn't corrode. All those things should wear out, not rust out and the hoarder denies those things to the community the beauty that god could make through us from that wealth is being denied that's why it's deadly the hoarding mentality robs others and to show how serious it is james ends in verse six let's look at verse six what does he say you have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you what they've done to their fellow Christians, their hoarding is just as disruptive to the kingdom of God as murder. I know we don't actually believe that, but man, what if we did? What, what if we actually said, this is true. This is God's word. I will submit to it. But there is a better way. There is a better way under this conviction and that's a gospel beauty. So what do I want to do? I want to hold on to this harsh reality from chapter 5, verse 6. And I want to, I want to bring back in chapter 4, verse 17. Okay? Put, put those two together. Okay? Look at these together in contrast. So we're told what? We've condemned and murdered the righteous person. We're also told whoever knows to do the right thing, which actually means whoever knows the beauty to make, it's sin. We put those together. And we see that the Christian life is not merely about our fulfillment, but it's about God changing the world through his people. And how did he do it? He did it by leading the way for us, because who is the righteous person who was murdered and did not resist? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of the beauty of God and united to him and his beauty. We are beautiful too. Even now that voice that pops up says, you're no, so not beautiful, <laughs> right? I had that voice too. Let the reality of your union with Jesus overcome that voice. If you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you are in union with him. So what is true of him is true of you. 
And if Jesus possesses all of God's beauty in him, so do you. And you are then commissioned as God's agents of beauty to make our ugly world better. That challenges us and it convicts us, doesn't it? Because see, the, the heart of the Christian longs to make God's beauty manifest in this world. But the monster inside of us rises up to stifle that desire, doesn't it? And so we either live in this guilty sadness as a Christian or we live in this kind of completely apathetic whatever mentality. See, but James won't let religious people like us stay there. By using the imagery he does, when it's so fresh within 15 years on people's minds, he basically says this, the plutocrats in Jerusalem condemned and murdered Jesus and he did not resist them. And by using those phrases to these Christians, he's saying, and if you plutocrats had been there, you would have murdered him too. Their practical atheism is exactly the sort of external religious practice that leads to hurting others. And our practical atheism is no less dangerous. See, but there's good news here too. Jesus was the righteous man who was killed. And what does the Bible say? Like a sheep led to slaughter, he did not resist. He was the person who offered no resistance because he was killed by the wealthy, powerful of his day to save everyone. He didn't resist because his death is what heals us. See, both zombies and ghosts have to recognize our helplessness and turn to Jesus that we might be made better, made beautiful, made whole. And he offers that to us freely because he earned it for us. Oh, Christians here today, look into your heart. Man, that monster of practical atheism is there, isn't he? We, we live in the world of commerce very often as if God doesn't see. We hoard our time. We, we hoard our resources. We ignore God. Be, be convicted of all that. And let that conviction lead you to repentance. Your gracious God and Heavenly Father brings you conviction that you might turn to the resources He gives you to change. In Jesus, you have the resources to say no to sin and to live the beauty He's put in you. See, God saved you for a relationship, James wants us to see. God wants your heart, and so in His grace, He's not going to let you be comfortable in your monstrous practical atheism. But that same grace that makes you uncomfortable empowers you to get out of it, to make the world beautiful. So repent of your apathy, repent of your atheism, and embrace Jesus as he's offered to you in the gospel again, and you will live this beautiful life and bring God's beauty to your community. And for those of you here today who wouldn't call yourself Christians, or maybe you're in conversation with your non-Christian neighbors or coworkers, you know, do, do you want to be a better person? Do, do you want the world to be better, however you define it? Are you finding that your worldview has the resources to make you and then your world better? If not... Hear again with fresh ears James's unique take on Christianity, which is this. God makes people beautiful in Jesus so they can then take his beauty to the world. 
Man, if you want to be part of that, place your faith and trust in Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. And he'll use you. Let's pray together. How gracious God and heavenly Father. Lord, texts like today that you give us, they really test. They test our belief and inspiration and authority because we want to, I want to make this go away. Lord, I pray that you would bring deep conviction to us and that you would then show us your grace. Lord, deliver us even now from the voices of failure, of defeat, the voices of try harder, do better. And instead, Lord, would you help us once again to embrace Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel? Would you help us to flee from our atheism to him? Lord, I pray here today for those who do not know you, that you would be true to your word, that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, he would draw all people to himself, Lord. And Jesus has been lifted up, shown to be crucified for sin and raised for newness of life. Would you be true and draw people to him, even now that they might confess and believe that your kingdom would come and your will would be done right here as it is in heaven. We pray that you would change us, Lord, and make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.